Hi everyone, and welcome to SEDScast, episode 3. I'm your host, Owen Marr, and our guest today is Therese Jones. Therese is the Senior Director of Policy at the Satellite Industry Association. SIA is a trade association which represents over 50 of the largest satellite manufacturers and operators based in the U.S. Therese is in charge of developing policy for SIA, and as such, she has a wealth of knowledge into U.S. space policy. Therese holds a PhD in space policy and a master's in astrophysics. She also sits on the SEDS USA Board of Advisors and is the founder of the AIAA Diversity Scholarship. Today we're talking with Therese about her journey to SIA and the major issues surrounding U.S. space policy. It is an honor to have her on the show. Welcome to SEDScast, Episode 3, U.S. Satellite Policy with Therese Jones. Hi, everyone, and welcome to SEDScast. Joining us today is Therese Jones. Therese, thank you for coming on the show. We're super glad to have you. I'm very glad to be here. For those of you that do not know Therese, she is the director, the senior director for policy at the Satellite Industry Association, which sort of advocates for a bunch of the big satellite manufacturers. And so today we're going to talk a lot about space policy, what the satellite industry looks like right now, and kind of how they interact with the government to make sure we're doing things in a safe and responsible way, while also making it as easy as possible for uh, different companies to get stuff into space. So, Therese, let's kind of start off. Can you walk us through kind of where you're from, how you got interested in space? Sure. Um, I'm originally from central Pennsylvania. Um, I really liked space as a kid. I realized in middle school that being an astronomer was a career. So that was my initial career path. Um, I did astronomy in undergrad and then originally went into a PhD program in astronomy um, and then decided that wasn't quite for me. The job market was looking really bad and no one was getting hired as astronomers. And plus I like bigger picture um, issues anyway, um, rather than I was coding eight hours a day, all day. So I made a switch over to policy and switched to a policy PhD program focusing on space policy uh, and sort of got involved in a wide variety of space issues from GPS to communications to remote sensing and space economics. So, and that's what brought me to SIA. Cool. So we'll, we'll do this in mostly chronological order, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit about your, your current role and what you do right now. So you're at SIA. Can you explain to people real quick like what that is, what the purpose of SIA is, and what your role is right now? Yep. Um, so we're a U.S.-based trade association. Uh, so we focus primarily on U.S.-related policies and issues. Sometimes we do international, um, but we have over 50 different member companies that have a U.S. presence. So we've got like the major geo operators, um, the new NGSO constellations are uh, our members too. Um, we've got remote sensing companies, um, some ground equipment suppliers, launch companies, and I'm um, sort of the industry liaison to the federal government. So we're a consensus-based organization and we try to come up with policy positions on different regulatory, legislative, and then some defense-related issues. Um, so regularly in meetings, um, both with federal government agencies on the Hill um, and then other state space stakeholders. Gotcha. Okay, so let's take a step back and kind of work our way up to how you got there now. So you started at Penn State and so you grew up in Pennsylvania. What drove you to join Penn State? Um, so I grew up in the town that Penn State's in. Uh, I definitely wanted to get out for undergrad, but 
Penn State had a really good astronomy undergrad program. So I actually only applied to three schools, um, got into one of the other two I applied to, but it ended up being really expensive and Penn State ended up being more or less free. Um, so that was really the deciding factor. But I think it was actually very good that I ended up there. It was sort of more the big fish in the small pond scenario where because it was a state school, even though it was quite good, I think I the astronomy program was quite good. I think I got a lot more attention than I would have um, at maybe a higher ranked school. Um, pretty much every undergrad in my program um, got to do research over the summer with faculty members. And I would say like half the faculty members knew 75% of the undergrads' names, which is pretty unusual um, in a big research institution. So I got a lot of opportunities um, while I was there uh, between going to conferences. I think I got paid to go to um, four American Astronomical Society meetings across the U.S., some different physics conferences. I got to go on two observing runs in Hawaii. Um, and then I got to do uh, three short-term study abroad opportunities as well. Um, so I, I got to take advantage um, of all the opportunities Penn State had to offer. Gotcha. So can you give us some kind of advice on, I know we have some uh, astronomy-based students and says, what are some things you really liked, things you really thought you did well, and what are some kind of regrets you had from your undergraduate career that you would advise uh, people be you know aware of? Um. I got into research right away, so if you're not doing research, highly recommended um, just to go around and talk to faculty members at your institution. Um, if you're at a smaller school, certainly look into summer internships, um, both REU's research experience for undergrads, but then there are some other ones too that um, are open to non-U.S. citizens. Um, I think SERP is, is one of them. Um, I believe that one's open to non-citizens. Uh, there are some in the Netherlands that are open to non-citizens, but just getting research experience somewhere um, is really helpful in applying to schools. Um, it seems like most schools, assuming you want to go the grad school route, will require some sort of research. Um, what, let's see, what did I, what do I regret? Uh, I, well, now that I'm in the space sector and not in astronomy, um, certainly would have liked to have had an internship with a company at this point. Um, and I think it's a good idea uh, now to keep your options open um, and maybe get that experience while you're an undergrad because it's a bit harder um, as a grad student when you're really focused on astronomy research in particular to go off and do a summer internship at a company um, because your advisor probably won't see the direct connection to astronomy. Um, I also tell undergrads now in astronomy to get as much hardware experience as they can. Um, I had zero hardware experience um, as an undergrad, but that's been one of the most valuable assets um, of friends of mine that have then gone off into the space sector instead of, you know, the more academic career path. Um, a lot of my friends did end up getting jobs that um, were more aerospace engineering oriented, uh, certainly their programming skills helped, but those with hardware experience did the best. Okay, very good advice. So what did you do as soon as you graduated? What was the, what did you step right back into UC Berkeley or did you have some time doing other stuff? Yeah, I went straight to Berkeley, um, for their PhD program in astronomy. And, uh, I do often advise students now to consider taking time off, um, before grad school, uh, if they want. 
you can usually defer grad school for a year, even if you apply straight out of undergrad. Um, but I didn't realize the extent to which companies will often pay you to go get a graduate degree. Um, when I was applying, I had a bunch of friends who graduated in astronomy, went straight into the workforce, um, and have since gotten paid to go back to do a master's or PhD by their company. So there they're making, I mean, almost their full-time salary while enrolled in school. Um, so it's a pretty good deal for them. And that's, I mean, I think a great opportunity to get a grad education. Also, you, it gives you time to figure out what you actually want to focus on. Uh, I think a lot of undergrads are pressured into going straight to grad school from faculty members, um, but it often helps to have the time to like stop and evaluate what your priorities are. And the students in my astronomy program who had taken time off seemed a lot more focused um, than the ones who went straight to grad school. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I'm going straight into grad school, but I'm only doing a one-year program, so it's a little different than PhD, but yeah. that's definitely good advice for people. I think, especially right now, a lot of people are kind of up in the air about what they should and shouldn't do for their careers, so that's, you know, food for thought for sure. Um, so you did go straight into Berkeley, and can you tell us why you chose that and how long you were there and why you ended up going to RAND? Um, so I chose Berkeley because they were, uh, pretty much, well, sort of tied for like top ranked astronomy grad school at the time. Um, and I mean, I enjoyed my grad visit, but I mostly enjoyed the, like talking to all the grads and postdocs and that felt like a very collaborative atmosphere. Um, I will say when I was there, it became apparent that the faculty were very disengaged from the students. Um, and it had a very negative climate. There was a massive scandal that blew up over national media um, regarding one of the professors and sexual harassment shortly after I left. Um, it was just a generally negative environment amongst the faculty. Um, I think a lot of that has changed at Berkeley. Um, some of the more problematic people have retired. They have good new hires. But I think they're certainly still recovering from a reputational perspective. Um, but that's something that I you know, tell grad student, well, prospective grad students to look for um, on visits is, you know, just general engagement of the faculty with your visit. Like I had big gaps in my schedule during the visit and some of the faculty members were pretty disengaged when we were talking and retrospectively, that was not the greatest sign, even though the grad students and postdocs were all great. Um, and they were still great when I, the grad students and postdocs were still all great and collaborative when I was there. Um, I did end up finding a good research advisor who is a wonderful person and um, highly recommend working with her. Uh, her name is Mariska Creek, but um, I was doing research with her for a while. Um, I was at Berkeley for four years in total, and I was mostly, um, even though I was an observational astronomer, um, most of my job was coding all day, every day, um, analyzing data sets, and uh, it became apparent that none of the postdocs at Berkeley were getting faculty jobs, or almost none of them. And you normally have to do two, three-year postdocs, post-PhD, um, before applying for faculty jobs. So that's a very large chunk of your life, um, committed to astronomy, and then to find out that there are no jobs for you. I mean, they all ended up getting jobs in industry somehow. Um, a lot of them ended up working in data science. But I realized I didn't want to commit 10 more years of my life to um, astronomy to potentially not get a job. 
so I ended up taking this online career personality test through the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and science policy came up as my top thing. I thought about science policy a bit, um, but I didn't realize there were PhD programs that were focused on it. So I ended up applying that round, um, and RAND ended up being where I landed. Gotcha. That's cool. So I think we talked about this a little before going on air, but I wasn't aware of what RAND was. And I think uh, some other students probably also won't be. So can you explain kind of how RAND works as a university and what it's tied to? Yep. Um, so RAND's the oldest PhD granting public policy institution in the U.S., but they only have PhDs in public policy. So RAND itself was founded shortly after World War II. Um, General MacArthur came back from the war and didn't want all these brilliant minds to go back into academia. So he um, got the Air Force to start a research institution um, focused on policy out in Santa Monica, uh, California. And it started off as primarily an Air Force research institution, but it's grown a lot since then and now covers all areas of policy from health policy to education policy, um, you know, a lot of science and technology policy. About half of their funding is from four federally funded research and development centers. Um, one's for the Air Force, one's for the Army, one's for DOD, and one is for DHS. Um, and the other half of the funding, you know, comes from a variety of other government institutions like NIH, CDC, Department of Education. They get some private funding. You know, some people apply for more academic style grants. Um, but it was a really interesting experience being in collaborative teams, not just with, I mean, because I was focused on space policy, I worked a lot with people who had science and engineering backgrounds, um, but also worked with like sociologists and anthropologists um, and people with a wide variety of backgrounds and collaborative teams. Um, the PhD program was pretty unique in that you didn't have just one research advisor in order to pay your stipend. Um, you ended up working on, you know, maybe five different projects um, at once. And you just go to different researchers, talk about, you know, what projects they were working on. And if you were a good fit, you'd end up working with them on a project. So it's got me good exposure to a wide variety of areas in the space industry from GPS, SATCOM, remote sensing, space economics, etc. Um, one of my more unique experiences, this is technically on a cybersecurity project, but I got to give a presentation to the former Secretary of Homeland Security um, while I was there. So that's not a normal experience you get as a PhD. Um, and that exposure worked out pretty well. And that's how I ended up in my current position. Okay. So can you explain when you first kind of heard about the Satellite Industry Association? Um, I knew about it as a grad student. It had popped. Well, I moved to D.C. in the middle of my grad studies. Um, Rand ha also has an office in D.C. because um, I felt like more space policy was going on here than out in California. Um, which I think was a good decision. I just sort of ended up going to every event I possibly could for, for that existed in DC that was free, um, which is a very good way to get exposure, by the way, if you have that opportunity. Um, but I think I ran into SIA at a couple of events they co-hosted here. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about how they functioned until the job was open, um, but it, it's been a really great experience. That's awesome. And we, we touched on it earlier, but sort of the primary purpose is to advocate for, can you tell us like some of the companies that are involved? Yeah. Um, Boeing. Or some Lockheed, of the sectors. Yep. 
<laughs> we've got Boeing, Lockheed Martin, SpaceX. Um, I'd say most of your main geo operators like Intelsat, SES, um, Echostar, Viasat. Um, so SpaceX, Blue Origin. Um, we've got Amazon now as a member. Um, both Kuiper, their Constellation, Amazon Web Services, um, Planet, Spire, Hawkeye 360, um, and a bunch of ground equipment suppliers, companies like that. Okay. And why would one of these companies, what is sort of the criteria or a decision point as to why a company would want to join SIA? Yeah. Um, so all our member companies have to have a U.S. presence. And I think that it depends on their size, I would say. So for smaller companies, I think we um, are able to give them a lot of information that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get because they have a small staff. So we disseminate a lot of different information and then have a lot of collaborative working group meetings on big space issues. But if they only have you know, one policy person, it's a lot easier to get information through an association than it is to hire additional people to cover all of that ground. Um, for the bigger companies, uh, they certainly see an area. They see the need to um, have a unified voice on different space policy issues. So, for instance, one area that was big this past year um, was there was the World Radio Communications Conference in the fall. Um, so the International Telecommunications Union holds this every four years, and it makes all these huge spectrum policy decisions um, for the entire world. And so that was a big area where we were focused on um, with some other international satellite related stakeholders um, to try and get the industry to compromise on what we thought the best policy positions were. And then everyone would advocate for those um, against, you know, the much bigger like Verizons and AT&Ts of the world. For sure. So can you talk about kind of what your responsibility is and kind of describe what you do within SIA? Yeah. Um, so as the senior director of policy, I manage all of our different working groups. Um, we have one that's focused on regulatory issues. A lot of that's FCC, but also um, NOAA, um, really any regulatory agency within the U.S. government. Um, we mostly uh, read these notices of proposed rulemaking um, that these agencies put out um, for public comment before they make any sort of new rules. And we try to come up with an industry position on certain issues. So a big one recently, for instance, the FCC is in the process of creating new orbital debris regulations. So I spent a lot of time with these companies over the past few months um, working on what we think is best for the industry on orbital debris. Um, we've got a legislative working group. So that's more Hill focused. Um, we do go into different lawmakers' offices and just give them a basic overview of the satellite industry and what our technologies do. Um, sometimes we're asked to provide feedback on a draft bill, um, so we do that too. Um, we've got a government working group, which is more DOD-focused, and we host different roundtables and dialogues um, on the DOD side. Uh, we work on export control issues, um, earth observation issues, cybersecurity is now becoming a big one. Uh, but and uh, space sustainability as well. So those are sort of the big areas we work on. Okay, so how do you interact with those companies? Are you meeting with them individually to talk about their needs? Do you guys meet as sort of a group and talk about what you are talking about consensus earlier? Yeah, um, they're largely group meetings. Um, we have like structure, very structured monthly meetings where we go through all the major policy issues for that month. 
Um, but then if there is some sort of rulemaking happening or where government's getting some sort of policy input, we'll have smaller groups of people help draft um, responses to those. Um, and then it depends on how contentious the issue is. Um, if it's something that's easier to come to consensus on, we might just send around um, drafts of a document because a lot of these companies are individually giving feedback um, to whatever agency. So we can sort of take that as a starting point. Um, and then we'll ask for feedback and have to come to consensus with all of our member companies for some of the more contentious issues. Um, we may have quite a few calls to determine very precise language um, to deal with some of these issues on. So again, been working on orbital debris a lot recently. I think we've had something like seven calls in the past two weeks to work on uh, just a two-page orbital debris position paper. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you have to be very specific when you're dealing with this sort of stuff and make sure all the wording's spot on. Yes. So how do you interact with policymakers, whether it's, uh, you know, an agency that can like FCC or if it's, you know, a specific congressman or congresswoman, how do you interact with them? And also, like, how do you explain these sort of very technical space systems and ideas to people that might not have, you know, a, a very technical background necessarily? Yeah. Um, so at the FCC, uh, everyone that we interact with generally has a pretty good background in spectrum issues, um, but they may not be as well phrased in, you know, the uh, astrodynamics of satellite constellations or business cases of satellite constellations or just what technologies are viable. So I think most of our a lot of our time there is explaining um, that. Um, on the Hill, I would say we do spend a, quite a lot of time just telling people, you know, what satellites are, how they function, um, what their uses are, and what satellite technology can provide to their constituents. So on the, on the Hill, it's more about, you know, what can satellites provide to the people of Michigan, um, for instance, you know, in the Upper Peninsula, I know there's not great internet access, so satellite broadband is used a lot um, up there for internet coverage. Mm -hmm. That is true. The internet in northern Michigan is spotty at best. But um, So what has sort of one thing I'm personally interested in is sort of the LEO constellations and some of the policy that surrounds that. What are the biggest issues with that and, you know, what's kind of the brunt of the workload that needs to be done to help make sure that the LEO constellations are safe and not impeding? I know also as an astronomer, you probably have some concerns. <laughs> so we're actually having a forum with uh, the American Astronomical Society next week on light pollution um, from these large constellations. Um, so I, I'm hoping that will be a good dialogue. Uh, the companies that are launching large constellations of satellites, I think have done a pretty good job so far about trying to collaborate um, with government agencies, or in this case, the American Astronomical Society, on the major policy issues. Um, there's certainly concern about you know dead satellites and being able to successfully deorbit them or make sure that they're in a distinct orbital plane um, far from anything else that they might collide with. Um, and that's an issue the FCC is certainly trying to address in its current rulemaking. Um, I know that uh, our member companies that are launching these large constellations have been working with DOD and doing simulations of the constellations to try and mitigate any impact um, that, you know, a dead satellite might have. Uh, but it is certainly a major policy issue. 
Definitely. That's another question that I have is, so, you know, you're handling all these U.S.-based companies, but something that seems really difficult is regardless of what you do, there's other nations that are very involved in space. And so how do you handle that sort of international side? Do you guys deal with that at all? Or is that kind of on the governments to settle? We definitely do deal with it. Um, uh, in the fall, we put out a very high level um, list of space safety principles. And the idea is that we wanted to present effectively to the world um, these high level principles that, you know, all a bunch of these major operators had agreed to um, just to encourage people in other countries that might not have as advanced space safety regimes um, to adopt things like this and sort of make them a norm, even if they aren't codified in law. I mean, it was things like having uh, operators on call 24 hours a day, um, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That was a principle that we put in because I've heard from some of our operators that they've gotten conjunction warnings um, and then tried to call people in another country and their office has been closed because they're on holiday. Um, and then they've had to escalate through very high diplomatic channels to be able to get in touch with anyone. And that's just not good if you're in a very time limited scenario. Um, so basic principles like that, we try to, you know, come up with a consensus document, introduce it and share it widely. Um, I, like I presented it at um, a UN related meeting um, at the International Astronautical Congress in the fall. So at least it got you know, visibility from international stakeholders. Um, we certainly do help uh, the U.S. government, too, when they're working with international stakeholders, if they ask us. So at the Space Symposium, um, I guess it was two years ago now, uh, we were asked by the State Department to help with EU and Chinese tours of the exhibit hall. So we did short presentations for both um, an EU delegation and a Chinese delegation on current space situational awareness capabilities, um, and then help take them to booths of some of our member companies where they explain their current technologies. Okay, that's very cool. So as we kind of, you know, NASA is starting to look towards the moon in the next couple of years, hopefully, how much policy needs to be done as we start to have more uh, satellites and more commercial satellites around the moon, potentially? I have been told by astrodynamicists that they are not super concerned about um, the moon from a space traffic perspective in the near future. Um, I know it's a different orbital dynamics problem, but they seem to think that it will take quite some time before it will become a major issue. Okay, just because of the volume of the set, like there won't be that many satellites orbiting yeah. for that. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, I think that was it for my questions. We had a couple of uh, policy, you know, there's I one thing I think is really great is at Michigan, at least, we have a bunch of students that are in aerospace engineering that are also interested in policy. And so it's cool because they are kind of having that technical background and policy background. So I had them kind of craft some questions that are beyond what I could have made up. Um, so I'm going to switch over to those now and we can kind of work through that. Um, so the first one here is from John Piercy. And it is, what do you think about the current trends in space commercialization? Is there, you know, a commercially driven sector that's better or more effective than a publicly driven one? I don't know that I would 100% say it's better or more effective than a publicly driven one, but I think we've seen huge advances from the commercial space industry in, like, miniaturization of 
you know, the form factor of satellites. So all these CubeSats that are being launched now. Um, for instance, I had one person at NASA um, ask me why astronomers can't seem to get small satellite mission proposals for CubeSats to be less than tens of millions of dollars. But yet Planet is manufacturing these satellites for probably, I, their data isn't public, but probably like $10,000 or something on that order. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of advances the commercial industry is making on that front. Um, and then just being able to, I mean, push down the cost of launch like SpaceX is. Um, it has been very successful at, they're certainly using um, a lot of government funding, but I think this, we're transitioning to a phase where um, NASA in particular and um, DOD to a large extent are looking at commercial partnerships um, more so than developing a lot of technology in-house. I think NASA um, and DOD will continue to develop um, very unique technologies in-house and cutting-edge technologies, um, but there are a lot of commercial use cases where industry can just go faster. Where do you, so how does SIA define the different sectors? So like when I think about it, I think about telecommunications, I think about, you know, earth observation and reconnaissance. How do you guys define those sectors with like internally? Yeah. So I guess our big splits are telecommunications, earth observation, remote sensing, um, and GPS. And our companies do work together a lot across those sectors on different issues. Um, but those are our main divides. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, do you ever think space exploration will become a completely privatized endeavor? I don't know that I would say completely privatized. Um, I think there is certainly, um, you know, room for it to privatize uh, since there's a lot of interest in asteroid mining um, or lunar mining um, and there are many companies competing uh, to go to the moon um, for resource exploration or exploitation. But I certainly think there will be a place for government for quite some time. Um, the government may, though, uh, need to rely on technologies that companies are already developing commercially um, to be able to do some of these longer term missions. Okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, do you have any thoughts, you know, from a policy standpoint on the Space Force as far as was this the right time to create it? Is it necessary at all? I think everyone realized that some change was necessary um, because there were over 60 agencies across DOD and the intelligence community doing space acquisitions. Um, so my old job at RAND, one of my projects was effectively telling the Army what the Air Force was doing in space. Um, because the Army was launching its own satellites and really was not on the same page as the Air Force and didn't know what technologies they should be looking at or investing in. And there's really no reason to have these two organizations stovepiped and then to have to pay someone to be the go-between. I mean, I certainly accepted the salary, but uh, <laughs> one would hope that they could come up with a more collaborative way to work on space issues. Um, and just because everyone in the military in particular uses space um, between GPS, communications, and obviously uh, remote sensing and reconnaissance, uh, there needed to be a more holistic approach to this. The, I mean, the real question always was, how do you do this? Um, and there was um, 
nonpartisan agreement that some sort of restructuring needed to happen. Um, and then there was a question of, well, now we've got Space Command. Is that enough to bring everyone in one, in one place? Um, and now we've got Space Force as you know, another extra level on top of that. Um, I will say that it, some sort of reorganization was certainly needed, but um, a lot of my PhD was focused on um, organizational culture um, of government agencies, and reorganizations often cause um, some sort of major failure um, within whatever you know agency you're reorganizing. Uh, just because of abrupt changes and not being able to get resources allocated properly. And then they're often, these changes can often be reversed by the next administration. Um, and I, I think that's across different government agencies. Not, this is not a Space Force specific comment, but that would be my main area of concern going forward is are they getting the resources they needed? Um, if there's a shift in, you know, the administration, will that impact it? Yeah. For sure. So that so you kind of view it as a um, sort of collaborative or centralized place for like the rest of these government agencies to like hopefully have some sort of sense of what's going on amongst each other. Yep. And I think another big push was to get people who wanted to work on space things in one spot, um, because I know it was difficult to get people to specialize in space um, across these different um, military branches, uh, because, you know, Air Force, everyone wants to be a fighter pilot. Um, and then, you know, some people randomly get assigned to do space, may not be that interested in it, but how do we get the best and brightest to do space who want to do space was another, mm -hmm. um, more workforce question that we're trying to answer. Yeah, definitely a difficult problem. Do you ever see there being an, you know, from the space force perspective, do you think there will ever be like a, a use of force case within space or do you think it'll still primarily be used just for surveillance and that sort of stuff i think i don't well i don't think that the existence of the space force um was a major policy shift in terms of um how they might the u.s government might use force even though the media has sort of played it that way um i think the u.s is pushing really hard to try and make sure that there aren't needs for use of force in space. And part of that is coming up with international norms. Um, there's, for instance, a group called CONFERS, um, which is working on, um, you know, on orbit, norms for on orbit inspections and rendezvous proximity operations. Um, because that's, you know, a big gray area in space. If a Chinese satellite comes really close to a U.S. one to inspect it, you know, when does it violate some sort of norm of behavior because there's no international law surrounding it mm -hmm. until you actively harm the satellite? Um, so I think that's sort of where the push is right now. Yeah, I think defining that sort of policy would probably help prevent use of force, too, if we define, you know, how close you can get in that sort of uh, regulations and rules. And yeah, I think the maybe the non-space media did kind of make it seem like the, the purpose of Space Force was to go fight wars in space. So, you know, it's good to hear that that's not, you know, the only reason that people think it's made is, you know, it's also a collaborative effort to some extent of just organizing. 
Um, so another question from our policy students was kind of, they wanted to hear your thoughts on China's space exploration program and also um, kind of if they will be commercializing space or not in your mind and sort of the policy issues that are raised by having uh, yet another country heavily involved in space. So I, I don't focus that much on human exploration since we're very satellite focused at SIA. Um, but I can say from a broader standpoint, I mean, China's dumping a ton of money into space. Um, I think they will continue to do so both for the satellite front um, and the human exploration front. Um, I know there have been major concerns about collaborating with China from a human spaceflight perspective. Um, and just in general, collaborating with China due to intellectual property issues in particular. Um, like, for instance, they um, were initially part of the collaboration to work on the European um, navigation system Galileo. Uh, and then they stole the technology from Galileo to make their own constellation, Beidou. Um, and there's a lot of reticence to collaborate the, with them on that front. Uh, I think we'll continue to see cooperation on, well, a lot of people try to cooperate on things like space sustainability, but I'm not sure on more technology sharing. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think there are some other questions sprinkled in here too, just about, you know, could there be positives from governments collaborating on stuff? Um, but it was talking more again about that space exploration. Do you have any, I mean, so SpaceX does a little bit of it, but do you think that, you know, private satellites will be used for exploration at all in the future? Or do you think they're going to stick more towards, you know, Leo and Geo providing services for on Earth? I think there's definitely interest in companies to go beyond Geo. Um, there's a whole co coalition for deep space exploration, uh, which is filled with companies um, who are looking to, you know, commercialize um, outside of Geo. Uh, I think it will certainly be important, um, like ULA is talking about uh, cis-lunar architecture that they could build privately. I'm sure they would need um, commercial satellites to do that as well. What ha What are the um, other big issues that you're, you know, kind of focused on right now or concerned about for the future as far as, you know, policy specific to satellites? Um, well, I'm... New one that just came, well, came up again was the Department of Commerce um, issued uh, proposed new remote sensing regulations. Um, and it's a huge step forward for the U.S. in that it's making licensing um, in general more transparent um, and faster. So the rulemaking more or less said if you are a technology that already exists um, in the U.S. and abroad. Um, we will streamline you as fast as possible. You pretty much get a green light to go ahead and build your remote sensing technology um, and not have to wait in a very lengthy process. Um, the real change, though, was they came up with a three-tiered system. So that's the first tier. The second tier um, was if your capability exists in um, the U.S., uh, already, we will also streamline you um, just to maintain U.S. competitiveness. And by looking at what capabilities exist in foreign countries and then also in the U.S. internally, um, it definitely helps decrease the very lengthy process of applying for a license. 
Um, we had companies that were trying to use technologies that are available internationally uh, that would wait, I mean, even a year in limbo and then not get a response um, about licensing. Because it's a very complex interagency process. It's not just NOAA. NOAA leads an interagency process with people um, across DOD and the intelligence community to approve licenses. And um, before, there was not much transparency in this process. It, it was being delayed indefinitely. And I had one company tell me that they got denied a license after like a year. Um, and it was it turned out to be because someone in the, in the Pentagon had done a calculation wrong and misplaced a decimal point. But they weren't given any feedback about the process. So they just got denied. Um, and I mean... This regulatory form is really important as we're seeing companies do things like um, ISI in Finland is doing synthetic aperture radar um, and doing it at a higher resolution than U.S. companies were allowed to. Um, so this reform is pretty important. Um, other issues that we're watching pretty closely, well, um, some people may have heard about uh, the fight for spectrum in the C-band that's heavily utilized for TV broadcasts. Um, and is now being reallocated for 5G. Um, so the FCC um, decided to make a large fraction of, the, of that spectrum available to 5G companies. Um, so the primary users of that spectrum are SES and Intelsat. They now have to figure out how to clear that spectrum to make way for um, 5G providers. The issue being that satellite signals are much weaker than 5G. Um, they're coming from so far away and there might be a lot of interference. So I think from a technical perspective over the next few years, there will be a lot of issues that come up as this transitioned. So between that and orbital debris and well, cybersecurity is a, again, a really big one, um, that a lot of different government agencies are focusing on right now. Um, like should satellites have some sort of encryption requirement, um, is a big one that's come up. Um, I would say our companies, uh, I, I don't want to say universally do because I'm not 100% sure, but I would say almost all, if not all of our, com our companies do encrypt their satellites. Um, but for, you know, an academic CubeSat, probably not. And so where, where, what's the correct level of cybersecurity um, that's needed for both space and ground systems is a big one. Definitely. I just saw a company the other day that was doing like, um encryption and high security for like i think it was autonomous ship navigation or something um and it was interesting and i think we've seen more of that sort of talk even like we as students have heard some talks you know from different people talking about security of signals and you know also the uh, optical communication stuff which i think is space i think spacex is using that with starlink i may be wrong on that but the uh, optical communication stuff is also interesting to hear about yeah i think they were supposed well in one version I saw, they were supposed to use it on Starlink. I'm not 100% sure what's still in plans. Yeah, I don't know if that's yeah something they, Elon says a lot of stuff that is a little late to come to fruition sometimes. It just depends. Um, so I kind of want to talk a little bit about the um, hurdles that we see. And this is something as you know, students building CubeSats and stuff, we see some issues with it. But there's a lot of paperwork that goes into getting something into space and a lot of communication. So where do you see the balance between making it easy for people to get stuff into space so that they can do experiments and, you know, do what they want to do, but also making sure that everything that goes up into space is held to standards and is safe? 
Yeah, that's certainly something the government's really focused on right now. Um, I, I mean, I think we're, we're going to see with the FCC or debris rulemaking that they will limit um, satellites to a, that do not have propulsion to a certain altitude. Um, and then there's a question of what they deem is adequate propulsion at other altitudes, mm-hmm. um, because companies um, with CubeSats uh, often use differential drag right now to move their satellites. It's not at a very high speed. And the way the FCC orbital debris making um, proposed rule was written um, might have excluded them from doing that. But these CubeSat operators have said there's no other um, propulsive mechanism that they can use right now that exists. Um, And it would be a huge impact to the entire CubeSat industry to eliminate um, differential drag as a viable option propulsion. Um, So in terms of safety, at least the U.S. is looking at that. Uh, It will certainly be an issue internationally, too, if not everyone has the same standards. Um, But the government has also, um, I I think, been pretty good at being trying to be helpful to um, the academic community um, in registering and launching their satellites. I know the FCC, um, has gone to the small sat conference, uh, in recent years and had a lot of meetings with academic institutions trying to figure out how to navigate licensing. Um, and also I highly advocate, uh, the Secure World Foundation has a handbook for new actors in space that sort of goes through a lot of the basics, um, for people who might be wanting to launch their own satellite. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah, I think the, the you know, kind of propulsion for CubeSats is very interesting. I know, I think at University of Michigan, we do some, like, research with the electrodynamic tethers, and obviously making really small electric thrusters is also possible, but that's interesting to hear about. Uh, so you touched on it earlier, and I also saw it on your website that Amazon and AWS, I think, as separate kind of actors, are both involved with SIA. Can you talk a little bit about why they are kind of involved and have an interest in the satellite industry? Yeah. Um, so Amazon joined us this past year um, when they announced they were going to launch their Kuiper constellation, uh, an NGSO uh, communications constellation. Um, so they're interested in a lot of the major issues all of our other satellite constellation um, companies are Um they're certainly interested in the space sustainability efforts, oral debris, um, and then uh, spectrum-related issues that might pertain to them um, upon launching. Um, AWS um, has been really huge in data analytics across the space industry. Um, obviously, a lot in remote sensing. I think they do also work um, with our communications providers to do um, different machine learning about resource allocation, too. Um, so that's why they joined. Okay. So do you think, I know, obviously, Amazon was the first kind of purpose-built tech company that's now getting into space. And a lot of other tech companies obviously use space for communications and such. Do you think a lot of other tech companies will start to get into either developing their own satellites or developing their own kind of space tech? Um, I think they've been pushing that way. I mean, Google hasn't done space yet exactly, but they had their Google Loon project, um, which was something similar in, you know, providing high altitude balloon um, connectivity 
so similar motive to a lot of the tech companies. Um, and I know Facebook had um, partnered with a company to launch a satellite as well. I don't know where they're going with that in terms of business um, trajectory. Uh, but I, I think there is also an interest in utilizing satellites or high altitude balloons to encourage the use of whatever service they're providing um, from in areas where people might not otherwise have internet access. Okay. Gotcha. And I think um, Astranus is another one of the companies that's involved with you guys. Um, so they came on and is their intent just to like get, need help with sort of the FCC and stuff or are they interested? What are they kind of interested in? Well, they are a brand new member who joined uh, maybe two weeks ago. Um, so I haven't had a ton of interactions with them yet. I know one of the motivating factors for them to join is they were very interested in the orbital debris rulemaking at the FCC um, and wanted to have a voice there. But I'm sure that they will be very um, involved in spectrum issues, too. All right, I think we're down to the last couple of questions that are in here. Um, so one of them is talking about how students can help shape policy. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, students, especially at SEDS, are pretty big advocates of the space industry in general. And I know we already do, SEDS already, you know, does some stuff. But can you talk about how students as individuals can get involved with space policy and how they can help shape space policy for the future? Yeah, um, I know SEDS has a congressional visit day. Um, but it's certainly something that uh, chapters can do on their own. Um, legislators love to hear from students who are their constituents. Um, so I would definitely encourage you to talk to your members of Congress about all the cool things that you're doing at your university. Um, and especially if you have a, if you want funding for something, um, it's a good way to, you know, showcase what your university is doing. Um, in terms of other things outside of organized congressional visits, um, you don't have to come to D.C. to do those, by the way. A lot of them um, will set up meetings with you when they're, you know, back um, in your home state or do phone calls um, as well. Uh, otherwise, um, for major policy issues, uh, there are a ton of events going on all the time in D.C. Um, a lot of virtual events also exist, especially right now. Uh, the best place um, often to look up these events is spacepolicyonline.com. They have an events calendar, um, and there are a bunch of webinars going on right now. I've just found it helpful to go to you know, sort of every open event possible, whether it's online um, or in person, um, and, and engage with people that way. Uh, otherwise, um, would definitely follow uh, Space News, um, spacepolicyonline.com. Um, I think those are probably the main ones I follow every day for news. Um, and I, I have a... Um, resource list that I've sent out to SEDS before for students in the space industry that I don't, I don't know if you can link to this podcast, but I'd be happy to distribute again. Perfect. Yeah, we could do that. Um, one other question that students had. So we talked about uh, space debris and we talked about communications as two kind of the, you know, policy issues that are going to have to be addressed. Are there any other major ones you want to mention or anything else you think is going to be you know, a bigger issue in the future, maybe now it's not on the back burner, but might become prevalent in the future? Um, again, cybersecurity is going to be a bigger and bigger issue, um, given 
well, everyone, it's not just different countries' cyber capabilities, but we're seeing um, smaller actors within countries be able to at least disable ground systems. Um, and then, I mean, you only need, you, you don't even need a very expensive um, jammer to be able to jam GPS um, signals from a decent distance at this point. It's, it's something that like a small group of pe organized people could easily afford. Um, so that's definitely going to be a major issue. Um, just being able to reach different communities to provide things like broadband access um, will certainly be an issue, especially as these uh, new constellations are targeting um, countries that largely don't have internet access right now. Um, other areas, I'm trying to think. I had one more and I completely forget, so I will go with that. All right, that's okay. So I think our last question uh, is about advice to students, and uh, this can be a multi-part thing, but, you know, students look to leaders like you and others in the space industry for kind of inspiration and vision and advice on, you know, as we're all starting our careers. What are some, you know, kind of key takeaways you want us to remember as we start to go into the workforce or go into graduate school? Yeah, um, so the great thing about the space industry that I found in transitioning from astronomy was that everyone was really friendly. People generally love their jobs and are often very willing to help students. Um, so take advantage of that. Uh, you will never get to be a student again and be able to ask for people's uh, time and energy in the same way that you did when you were a student. Um, so I highly recommend if you meet someone at a conference or even right now, now that we probably won't be congregating um, for quite some time, um, to reach out to people in the space industry, whether you saw them on Twitter or you've got a mutual contact or you find them on LinkedIn, um, reach out to them, talk to them about their career trajectory, uh, ask for half an hour of their time to just sit down and talk, um, especially for students looking for jobs. I'd recommend doing that. Um, don't outright ask someone for a job. Um, People will offer, well, will give you advice on how to apply to their company um, during your conversation if there are openings and they think you're a good fit. Um, but sit down and have as many conversations as possible with people. Um, be sure to thank them for their time. Also, um, be very timely. Uh, I've had students miss meetings before that we've set up. And it, it, people remember it's not a big community. So always put your best foot forward in interacting with anyone in the community because they will probably remember you. Um, and yeah, just take this time to ask all the questions you can. Um, use online webinars and uh, different open online courses if you um, don't have anything to work on right now to improve your skills. Um, and I think the space industry in general is going to be more resilient than a lot of other industries um, post-COVID. So while there may be somewhat of a lull in hiring right now, though there are definitely some companies still hiring, um, I think we'll rebound a lot faster than a lot of segments in the economy just because we're counted as critical infrastructure. Perfect. Okay. I think that was a great summary. So with that, I'd like to thank Therese for coming on the show, and we will see you guys next episode. Thanks for having me.